0: Learn Persian with Chai Conversation. Growing Up Ironi interview with Noam Schuster Eliassi. So... As I'm recording today, it is the hundredth day since the October 7th attacks in Israel and the hundredth day of the war in Gaza. It's been an incredibly hard thing to witness, and I found myself really leaning into the words of a comedian I followed for a really long time named Noam Shuster Eliassi. Noam is an Israeli comedian and activist, and she performs in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. She was born to an Iranian-born Jewish mother and a Jerusalem-born father whose parents were Holocaust survivors from Romania. NOME went viral for a beautiful speech she delivered in 2015, and the speech was widely circulated in the days after October 7th as well. I want to share that full speech first. It's four minutes long, so you have context into her and her views, and then share with you my full interview with NOME. I really hope you take time to listen to the full thing.
1: You are a traitor for thinking we can have peace with the Palestinians. I am ashamed that you are one of my people. These were the final words of one of my relatives right before coming here. My parents, when I was little, they decided to make my life very, very complicated in the heat of the Oslo agreements when they still had hope, and they moved to the only intentionally mixed Israeli-Palestinian community called the Oasis of Peace. I was brought up dreaming, loving, laughing and crying in Hebrew and in Arabic. I also laugh in Farsi with my nuclear Iranian family. My mother was born in Iran, and my father is son of Holocaust survivors from Romania. When I speak Arabic, most people think I'm from the military or from the intelligence, or they think I'm Palestinian because I look Middle Eastern. Jews of my generation who speak Arabic Ironically, speak it for military purposes. I am stopped in Jerusalem daily by Israeli forces mistaking me for a Palestinian. My identity embodies an alternative narrative. A narrative where an Iranian Jewish woman can speak Palestinian dialect simply to communicate with her neighbors and best friends, not to spy on them. Last time I checked Arabic was the language, is the language of the Middle East. Since childhood I have seen failed peace processes, failed leadership growing hatred, shattered hopes for agreements between Israelis and Palestinians. Despite it all, I still believe in positive change. That makes me an outsider. Instead of further excluding myself, I found strength by asking difficult questions. How would you behave if most of your society considered you a dreamer? What would you do if you considered most of your society racist or militant? I do not have all the answers, but what is clear to me is that there is no option to give up. Parts of your society that reject tolerance, reject equality, are exactly the parts of your society you need to hang on to, engage with, and not let go. If you let go, much more dangerous agendas and extremists seeking political legitimacy will gladly take up that space for you. That is what happened to my society, which in recent years has shifted tremendously to the right. The West Bank and Gaza are the biggest open prisons in the world. Palestinians continue to live under an ongoing humiliating military occupation. Their desire for basic freedom, dignity, and statehood is ignored not only by the Israeli society and the international community, but the entire world. And at the same time, Israelis, my society is not confronted with what the occupation is doing to the moral fabric of our society, nor how it diminishes the possibilities for a shared life in the Middle East. I have seen firsthand how the peace movement consisted almost exclusively of middle class, educated, secular activists. For years, I have witnessed the limitations of traditional liberal peace movements. These processes tend to attract like-minded liberals and are almost exclusively led by white, middle class men. Historically, religion has been perceived as an obstacle for peace. Religious leaders were never included in the conversation. What a historical mistake to try and separate religion from peace in the Holy Land. I want you all to challenge yourselves, challenge your assumptions about who can create change. Only when I confronted my perceived enemies, I discovered potential in unusual places. Believe that even your worst enemies can transform. Religion was used and could could be used to destroy, but it can also be used to repair and to heal. I want to say, Abir, we are not free until you are free. I want to say that your freedom and my freedom cannot be separated and it will never be separated. Thank you. Noam Shuste Eliassi,
0: thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Yeah, I I wish that it was under better circumstances. And I yeah. know it's been a hard, very hard few months, but I've really been wanting to talk to you. So I really appreciate you
1: taking time to 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 talk to me today thanks it's actually today it's 100 days to yeah since uh you know this kind of hell began here and there is a demonstration now for ceasefire and demanding ceasefire and a deal you know to release the hostages but i am here with you which i think you know doing these conversations and having these discussions whether it's like online and protest it's both important so
0: i hope so i have been following you for a really long time for much before what happened in october and i really appreciated i i think the first clip that i saw of you was when you were doing comedy and you were talking about how it's easier to do comedy in front of audiences that are not from where you're from yeah because they don't have all this baggage they don't have all this you know they have a different perspective. And so you can actually make comedy about a situation that for us is so embattled. So I, that really resonated with me. And since October 7th, it's been, uh, I've been going to your page more than anyone else's to see your perspective and to see what you have to say. And I've been getting a lot of pushback for just on my page. So I can't imagine how it is for you. Yeah. So what, how, what kind of pushback have you been getting? That's interesting. Well, Mm-hmm. I want to I want to talk about it very fully um, as we talk about your background and like where yeah. you're from and everything. But basically, I started off in the beginning. I do these boot camps to teach Persian. And in this boot camp, we happen to be learning the poem Bani Adam, which is a poem by Saadi. It's written in the UN. It's a yeah. very and the it says Bani Odam Karan, meaning human beings are part of the same whole. Yeah. So I had recorded this poem of me reciting it when earthquakes happened in Morocco. Well, in so many horrible things have been happening in Turkey yeah. and in Iran, there was this series of earthquakes. So I posted that and I said, you know, oh, it's this is the poem that I think of, you know, when one person is in pain, we're all in pain. Right. So I reposted that poem afterwards. And the comments, I mean, the poem just says we're all human beings. And, you know, when it was written, it was actually a very radical poem because people didn't think that way. They thought this is our people. That's your people. And then Sadie was like, no, 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 no. I've I've traveled the world. I've talked to people. I've realized we're all the same people. Yeah. So I put that poem. And from all sides, I got pushed back saying, why did not you say this? Like, we've been in pain for a long time. Why did not you say this before October 7th? And then other people saying, oh. This has been going on. Or why do you only talk when this is happening? Blah, 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 blah. Just lots of pushback. So it started there. And then I was just amazed. So I I started putting that poem more often in my stories. Every time I would just get all these messages of people being like, oh, you're a horrible person. (laughs) I was like, what is happening? That this poem that's supposed to be uniting us is like tearing us apart. That is crazy. Yeah. And then I would say like, just simple things like uh children shouldn't be killed, oh you're you know blah 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 blah, Ooh. and to this day i mean i'll I'll tell you more, but yeah, to, to this day, I get comments, and a lot of times I have very respectful comments, and you know we come to an understanding, and you know nobody everybody cares about human rights, it's just you know da da, da. but sometimes I just get so angry and
1: yeah. No, it's crazy that to say, you know, even the most compassionate messages during time of hate and bloodshed and like extreme, you know, circumstances, like you, you, you can't win this, this moment. You just can't, no matter what you say, spe- and you know, you've been getting that, imagine like what I've been getting. Exactly. My- My world has been collapsing on so many levels, and it is, to be honest, I'm very happy to be with you because I feel that I, you know, I am so connected and so proud of my Iranian identity. And during this time, you know, and I have the Israeli, the Palestinian, the Jewish, the Arab, everything. But the Iranian Jewish part of me during this time has given me only comfort because I felt like most of the people that I feel like truly understand where I am positioned are Iranian activists and Iranian women. And my friends, like, you know, we are really, we are really good friends and like a wow. few times and go and like you know i'm i I'm talking about Gaul, but like as a as a tagline you know as um as someone who represents something so complex, nuanced, so humane, so amazing, so beautiful, someone who knows very well what the power structure is, you know in terms of Israel being so strong, how the Palestinians are treated. And also, like, what the role of the Iranian regime is within this mess and understands fully to the most nuanced level in what mess I am and how I'm feeling. Wow. Yeah, and the communication with a lot of Iranian activists during this time has been something so healing for me that I just, you know, I want to say thank you to, you know, every person that is listening and that has written to me and that has given me like advice and comfort and support. And really I, you know, there aren't many things in my life that I am sad and mourn about so much. Like, you know, my, how my grandmother, the way she would speak about Iran and the way that like, you know, my grandmother left Iran when she was in her twenties. It was kind of, out of her control, how, you know, the Jewish agencies and the Zionist agencies, like, brought them to Israel. It wasn't, like, I don't know how much of a choice it was, to be honest. Like, I tried to look for the history, like, the personal history of my family, and I think that my grandparents never had this ambition to, like, leave Iran and go to Israel, you know. My grandmother spoke about Iran till her last day, as if this was... This was her home, you know. And when I speak to, you know, my Iranian sisters that are also like outside of Iran for many, many different circumstances. I'm Jewish, so I'm outside of Iran for different circumstances than, you know, like, Golshifta or other artists that that had to be exiled and stuff in, uh, you know, and... And it's just incredible that I've never been there, but I feel so connected to a place that I've never been to. And my grandmother, when they were brought here as like non-European Jews, as non-Ashkenazi Jews, they were be they were being treated very badly, and they were in kind of like development towns, and not not being treated as like you know the. Um, the kind of Ashkenazi hegemony and the, and the, you know, the more uh, European Ashkenazi Jews that came bef- before them and were more acquainted with what's going on here and everything. And when you entered my grandmother's house, even though it's not in Iran anymore,
0: uh-huh.
1: I knew I was in Iran. Like, in my grandmother's house, I was in Iran. Wow. Wow. Uh, everything like you know the the plates the the food the music the language I my my Farsi is not so good and my grandmother's Hebrew was never that good but oh. we communicated like I don't I still to this day don't know how <laughs> so well, yeah. like, she had this mix of Hebrew and Farsi together
0: <laughs> wow well first that really surprises me I'm really very amazed because I have been hearing, I guess all of my audiences, a lot of different types of Iranians, and I hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people, and I haven't been sure where the Iranian diaspora stands on these issues, you know? And a lot of the pushback I get is from Iranian Jews who say, like, how dare you, you know, speak up for Palestinians? Like, we had to flee Iran because it was inhospitable to Jews, and you should understand better and you know, I keep thinking. Well, I, our family had to flee Iran too. We all had to flee Iran. Those were, yeah. that was, we the same in that. And I understand the horrors of the Palestinians because I'm Iranian. I think you know, I understand oppression better because I'm Iranian. So I'm, I'm very happy that you say this. That you have been getting this feeling of solidarity. That's very nice because I do think it's the same. Like that's what I've been trying to say. Like, like there's, we've all been. Activists for Women, Life, Freedom, you know. Yeah. It, it's all the same fighting oppression and fighting for, you know, p- freedom, dignity.
1: When you don't weaponize a context, you can actually see, you know, how all the dots are connected, honestly. The way is the the discourse around Israel and Palestine has, when it's weaponized, by you know, you know, in the Iranian context, to either glorify the the you know the the Islamic regime in Iran, or to glorify is you know the anti you know the anti the anti uh, how I would call it the the kind of pro-Israel you know. Like- well, a lot of monarchists, right? Like the exactly, yeah. I didn't want to say that, right, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I look, you know, and I look at the kind of like the Israel PR pages, some of them that are using the women' life freedom and using the the Iranian context in order to make some kind of like a only a pro Israeli message. And right. This is. The- you know, this is like as as an Iranian Jew, I'm like, I feel like this is this is twisting the plot because yes. it feeds, it feeds into so much Islamophobia that is not needed in this context. Right. On, on the other hand, when you have like pro, you know, uh, 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 Iran Islamic Republic regime, that yes. is, like, you know, glorifying their pro Palestinian. Come on, you're not yes. you're not that pro Palestinian. You're not that pro humanity. Exactly. <laughs> we're seeing how you're treating your own people and you and the women in in your country so don't lecture to you know so exactly there is a field you know for us there is a field for us where you as an as an Iranian you understand you know the Palestinian context because because you understand oppression right and you also understand my world You know, we are both Iranian and, you know, and you know that in the Iran that you and I know and you and I dream about my Jewish, my Jewish heritage and my Jewish identity is a very natural part of Iran. Yes. It's it's a protected part of Iran. It's a it's a it's a place where my grandparents always spoke about as home. Right. Yes. So let's go back
0: and talk about your background. Can you tell me about your grandparents and, and what their experience was like in Iran and what you know of it?
1: So my grandmother grew up in the, uh, the Hamadan district in Malaya. And, and actually,
0: let's yeah. go back. What's your makeup? Like your mom is okay. half Iranian. Is that right? Yeah, tell me.
1: So my mom was born in Abadan. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, my father was born in Jerusalem. He's a son of Holocaust survivors from Romania. And so my father was, was born in Jerusalem. So I have the Holocaust side, <laughs> my, uh, my father's side. And my mom was, was born in Abadan. She, was, she has uh, eight siblings. She was the last one to be born in Iran. And then the, the rest of the kids were already born after 59 when they, when they came to Israel. And my grandmother is from Malayer, from Hamadan. Hmm. And my grandfather is from Abadan. So when my grandmother, you know, there wasn't like a big Jewish community in uh, in in Abadan. But when my grandmother married my grandfather, she kind of moved there, and my grandfather was working there, like a like everyone in the oil kind of industry, or whatever, like a simple uh, worker worker's life. And I, you know, the stories that I know. First of all, when when my family left Iran, they had to. There was a lot of survival. So I never really I had to go and really dig my family's history mm-hmm. because the kind of mainstream narrative or what we learn here in school is a Zionist perspective like a European Zionist perspective. So there is a lot of investment in us knowing about the history of the Holocaust and you know, the way that the Zionist movement kind of, you know, started and was founded and And so we learn about non-European Jewish history from a very limited context, Mm. a very limited perspective. So I had to independently go and find out from my uncles, my aunties, like, how was your life in Iran? What what was it like? What was the smell like? What did you do? What did you eat? Where was my grandfather? Like, was my grandmother alone a lot? Like, where you know, because he would go, you, you know, to work sometimes for months and then would come mm-hmm. back. Like it was a very, it was a very, very challenging life for them. They were uh, poor. <laughs> and also some unpleasant memories of my uncle remembering that sometimes there would be like hostile in, in, in environment, especially, you know, I... I don't know, like my uncle remembers a few incidents where there was stone throwing at homes of Jews, but nothing too violent or too big or, you know, just, but in general, my grandmother referred to Iran as home until her last day. And I remember even, you know, in her last days, I I, I used to ask her, I used to ask her if You know, if she could go back, if she could, if she, if she would have the choice to go back to Iran, she would always say yes.
0: Oh.
1: Yeah. Always. And yeah.
0: Do you know how many generations back they were there in Iran?
1: It's just. I I mean, my grandmother was born near the, you know, the Esther's tomb in Shushan. Right, right,
0: right, right, right. So centuries.
1: Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And did they have, you said they didn't have a big community in, like there wasn't a Jewish community, but they- did they have just Iranian friends or how was that? Do you know?
1: Yeah, they they they, they did. Yeah. My grandmother has a lot of memories, but I, I think they would also, they had also family in like in, in Tehran and in other, you know, bigger cities. So I think that they would also... You know, before they were brought to Israel, they they stopped in Tehran. Like, it was a station, and then all the family gathered there. And then, you know, together, they, you know, they came, they came to Israel. And to be honest, I think there is a lot of, like, trauma and shock around. You know, they were, yeah, they were uprooted.
0: Right. Right. And I, I think, mean, from, from what I understand, like, my mom's stories... She had so many Jewish friends. It seems like the communities were very integrated. Oh, but I yeah. don't so I don't know if that's some of the comments that I've been getting in messages is that there was a lot of racism towards Jews in Iran for a long time. But yeah, I so I wanna hear if that's the case with your family, if you know you said you've heard yeah, some were, small stories.
1: Yeah, but in general in general, I mean I think, you know, I think we would be naive to think that there weren't like right. problems there are there are classes and there are tensions between minorities and i mean everywhere it's not right. like the thing that Iran invented but like but in but in general m- my family's memories and history and you know what i what I know is that there was good neighboring relationships, and you know my aunt her name is Morvari and you know all the names all the persian names of my family when they when they came to israel they changed like my mother's name is turan oh wow they changed it to turuti which is ruth in wow. hebrew okay my my yeah my uncle is Daoud. they changed it to david and yeah uh, my aunt's name is iran they changed it to iris like to <laughs> wow to, yeah. yeah 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 interesting um, my uh, my my mother's aunties still called, you know, called her until they, until recently they called her Turanjun. It's it's like, yeah. And, you know, it's very kind of like symbolic for me that, not symbolic, but the the, the fact that the establishment here in Israel had to change my mother's name to some to something that is sounding more Hebrew. Right. I think I worked my entire life <laughs> to reclaim my mother's name back, wow. to talk about my Iranian heritage, to, you know, to bring back the Eliasi into my name, to, uh, you know, to remind my mother that, yeah, they came here and she had to become Ruti and to speak Hebrew, but my mother's tongue is Farsi and my mother's name is Turan and I don't want to forget that. And um, you know, there was what we learned is that there was this melting pot, right? All the Jews came from Morocco, Iraq, Iran, Poland, w- whatever, and then they had to all just like forget where they came from, forget their languages, forget their ancestry, and just focus on Hebrew and becoming Israelis and right. wipe and erase so much, so many parts of them.
0: Wow. And my brother
1: has really heartbreaking memories. Of having to speak to her parents quietly, like she she went to a boarding school. That's where she met my my father. And when you know she would go to like a public phone, and she would speak to her to her parents in Farsi, and she would do it quietly because she would be mocked. Like, wow, the yeah the the Farsi kind of accent became a big like a comic, uh, <laughs> you know, here on. You know, on TV, a lot of Persian actors here, Iranian actors or Kurdish or something, they became kind of famous for their, you know, I speak in this, you know, this accent and it is so funny and, you you know, right. It was mocked and she, and she slowly, yeah, she slowly, I lost. Integrated, assimilated. Yeah. And I lost my mother's tongue. Wow. I, I unfortunately, you know, my aunties and my grandmothers, they would keep the Farsi as, like, their own kind of gossip right. language, and yeah, it's Well, I have two questions.
0: So, first, you said that... Did you say that Jews were a protected class in Iran? Did you say that, something like that? I mean, I think it's like that
1: until today, right? So, what do you mean by that? I mean the the Jew the Jewish uh, the Jewish religion is a protected religion in Iran unlike the Bahai and right today I don't
0: know oh. <laughs> I t- yeah. I'm asking yeah no tell me yeah okay there are, there are I think twenty
1: five thousand Jews in Iran today so. okay
0: because I I think it's something it's a history that people don't know I don't know like what because I know there's yeah I know Bahais are discriminated against but you can be openly Jewish in Iran and it's okay.
1: Look, I mean I'm not one hundred percent sure of everything okay. saying, and it's but I I I know I mean I'm sure that it's very complex and I'm sure that it's very sensitive to be a Jew in Iran. Like I'm not, you know but but I think that in you know in general like we don't mm-hmm. hear that anything out of the norm like I threat. Right. I, I think that this you know, in light of everything that's happening and how oppressive and everything it isn't i mean it is an oppressive place and it's not like jews are like woohoo you right, know? right 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 <laughs> i think generally i think generally you know why do you know kind of from what i know and from what i see in videos i get from synagogues every holiday they're protected so there's still
0: synagogues
1: oh yeah that's something yeah, yeah. i don't even
0: know that yeah. okay
1: yeah 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 on uh on new on Jewish New Year's and on big holidays, we always get videos of oh, okay. prayers, in synagogues in, uh, yeah, in, uh, in Iran. Okay. So then what was the, you said that, like, what was the
0: process of going from Iran to Israel for your family? Like, how did that happen?
1: That's another part of history that is, you know, I mean, there is so much weaponizing of these narratives and this kind of, you know, what happened there. And... I studied and I listened to my family and I you know and I'm and I'm telling you kind of like what I gathered from from everything that I know I think that largely at first after the establishment you know after 1948 okay which for Israelis it's the establishment of the state of Israel for Palestinians it's their catastrophe where you know where Palestinians lost most of their land and were exiled and and and, you know i mean when people were attacking you on october 7th and they told you this didn't start in october 7th what they meant is is that it started in 1948 and up to today we're kind of picking up the pieces of you know what does it mean and there there is like a war there is a narrative war over what has happened i grew up with palestinians and my parents raised me to know acknowledge and learn that in 1948 when israelis consider that as the establishment of the state of israel my palestinian neighbors and friends they consider that as their catastrophe where a lot of their families became refugees and they were exiled from palestine and so when when you know when ninety when in after nineteen forty eight most of the you know most of the kind of Jews that were coming were you know from Europe Holocaust survivors, all of that, and then slowly the Jewish agencies realized that they need to bring slash make it you know make it uh, possible for. The Jews in other places to start coming here, Mm -hmm. North Africa, Muslim Arab countries, then gradually Ethiopia, etc., etc. Now, what I'm describing to you right now is not—it's not simple. It's very, very complex. Okay, Jews who are not—you know, Jews who are not Holocaust survivors—generally do not have negative experiences from I mean the Holocaust happened in Europe you know the Nazis you know it it happened to in Europe and then for Jews in other places I mean things weren't pink and perfect and amazing but they were minorities in, in in other places and like my family they were in Iran at home you know I don't think my grandfather you know he prayed to Zion he was a proud, traditional, religious, Jewish, Iranian Jewish man. Mm-hmm. Prayed to Zion. He prayed to Jerusalem. Did he have the dream to pick up his family and come to the Holy Land and come to Israel? And I don't, I don't think so, to be, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. I do not think so, from what I know from my grandparents. But the Jewish agencies and the Zionist agencies, they were on a mission, you know, to make sure the Jews all over the world not only know that there is now a newly founded home for the Jewish people, but there is a possibility for them and they will get this and they will get that. And now you have to be among the Jewish people and this and that. And like, you know, I try to think of my grandmother over there in abadan taking care of so many children and hearing that all of this is happening and they took her big brother and the big brother of my grandfather and kind of like and you know how it is in iranian families like one big brother
0: brother goes and yeah
1: (laughs) yeah and and you're uh, i mean the families it's life is around family and around community and And I don't know, and that goes also to, you know, Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews. After 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel, it became much more challenging for Jews in the Arab, Muslim, North African, Middle Eastern sphere. Right, Tensions were different. Things were different. Relationships were different. Trust issues were different. You know, there is suddenly, like, you know... And so, I, 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 I don't know to tell you how much of this was my grandparents picking up and being, you know, like, I don't think my, my grandparents were these, like, Zionist proactive. Right. I don't think so. Wow.
0: What year was it that they 50, came? 1959. Okay, so it was even before the... Islamic Revolution.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This okay. was before. And then there was a big wave, you know, uh, just before and after the the you know the, the, the Islamic Revolution. Okay. Jews in Iran were not that hungry to get up and leave. Right. No, they stayed until the last minute before the revolution. Right. So there are two big waves of immigration from Iran, from you know, of, of Jews from Iran in the fifties those who are kind of like and I think those who were more financially stable and didn't want to leave behind, you know, their life, their everything, their businesses, their neighbors, their lo- their home. Right. They stayed until they could, until right. it was no longer possible in a way. Right. Some right. never and some never left even. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and then some- and some left to Teheranjeles. And I always tell my grandmother, <laughs> why didn't you go to Teheranjeles? <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> so then the Iranians that are in Israel, did they still do Noruz? Did they still, yeah. like, did you grow up? You, really? Okay. So you yeah. grew up with those traditions as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You need to see, My aunties are now
0: preparing my henna. My <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. So you're going to have a traditional Iranian
1: wedding. The henna part will be, yeah, will be very, it will be traditional. I want to give them that. They're very excited about it. (laughs) And within our Jewish traditions, we have the kind of like uh, Iranian. On Passover, there are things that are unique to Iranian Jews. Wow. And the food, I think, because, you know, I mean, Jews, the kosher, you know, we don't mix the butter and uh, the dairy and the meat. Mm -hmm. So the taddik that we make is not with butter. Yeah, olive oil or or oil or non dairy oil. Okay, and also what I think it's called the uh, like the kufte berenji, and uh, the the uh Jews call it gondi. I don't know if did you ever like no yeah. Anyway, no, no, I haven't heard. Yeah, so I don't know. There are some names also of different dishes that, but but the king is always in our Yeah. Kitchen. Of
0: course, as it should be. Yeah. Uh, But then what about now with languages? Like, is the Persian language, are there people speaking it now? Or is it still not spoken very much in Israel?
1: So when my aunties gossip, they still gossip in Farsi. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you still can't understand it. (laughs) It's funny because, yeah, I I, I can't. But then when I started learning Arabic, it was really Uh funny because, you know, they would, like, I would... I, I started knowing Arabic and then, you know, i mean in Farsi and Arabic, very different, but there yes. are some words that you can, and then, you know, a little bit after I started learning Arabic and knowing Arabic very, very well, suddenly my auntie was like, shirini and I'm like, because oh, in Arabic, <laughs> the same, hamil. and I'm like, oh my God, she's really pregnant. <laughs> so I started, <laughs> I started picking up, you know um And nice. I was always listening, you know. I was always um, like listening to the, to them, and I, I know the songs by heart and stuff. And I understand a lot, but it's really hard for me to carry a conversation. So yeah.
0: Well, so now tell me about your upbringing. So you also have a very viral speech that you did a few years ago about growing up in a community, and you mentioned it in this interview too that you grew up in a, in a community with Israelis and Palestinians. So can you tell me a bit about that and your, kind of your evolution? Because a lot of people that grew up in Israel don't know any of this, right? They don't really know. They only know the Israeli side. Yeah. So tell yeah. me about your upbringing, what you learned when you learned and what
1: led you to feeling the way you do now. So my parents really, truly, you know, in light of, of especially everything that's happening now, I keep thinking of them, you know, back then in my age and how they wanted really a different kind of future for me and my brother. So they be- they became very politically aware. My father was, my father sat in military detention for refusing to serve in the occupied Palestinian territories and in Lebanon. But he was a Holocaust survivor, so that's very rare, right? Like he he's was a, a very rare person. He's a son of, Holocaust, of of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, he kind of grew up in a traumatized home, you know, and didn't really have access until later on to tools to understand, you know, the political and social kind of, you know, uh, struggles of this place. And I think that when the first Palestinian uprising happened in 1987, which is the year I was born in, I think that his his uh his political kind of awareness really 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 grew, and you know my parents were protesting, and my father was part of a movement of refuseniks of Israeli people who wow. were drafted to the reserve duties, and were like, no stop, you're not sending us to the occupied Palestinian territories, we're not going to serve and do this, you know the like. They were trying to push the government back then to go into a negotiated peace agreement, you know wow with the p l o and 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 all of that, and it was such a no one thought that anything will happen at that time and then after years and years of them struggling, suddenly there was the Oslo peace accord if if you remember in the nineties
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the and Suddenly, Yasser Arafat and Rabin, they were talking, like, you know, and, they, and so my parents really felt part of what was happening then. And I have memories of my mom, have, you know, for the first time, I, I saw her, like, crying from joy. She's like, there is, there's going to be peace agreements, you know, being, wow. she picked me up from school. And at that time, that's when they moved to a place called the Oasis of Peace which is the only place in Israel where, you know, Jews, Israeli Jews and Palestinians with Israeli citizenship live together by choice. Wow. And it still exists. It still exists. My parents are there. My brother is there raising his kids. It's, you know, it it is, it is, you know, a complex place. I don't think that it, my parents, I think when they moved there, they had a obviously a different idea, like they thought that this place will be, you know, kind of like the beginning of something much, much bigger, and yeah, yeah, and so I grew up very differently from my extended family and from other kind of, you know, Israelis who are usually not very much um, exposed, I mean, it's very segregated in Israel. Right. Palestinians and Israelis don't really mix. Arabs wow. and Jews, we don't mix. We're like it's very segregated. It is it, it is very it is there are mixed cities, but even within the mixed cities, the educational systems are different and everything. And so when I moved there, when we moved there, it was suddenly, you know, my neighbors are Palestinian, my classmates are Palestinian. I'm learning Arabic, just as I'm learning Hebrew. The narratives are dual. I'm learning both both narratives and and it it was like you know within a year i was seven and within a year as a little girl i was like okay i i i i understood that i am not going i knew that i'm because i saw my cousins and i saw the people kind of around me and i was like okay this is not the same i mean i'm growing up different is it your cousins
0: on your mom's side and
1: dad's side yeah wow okay yeah and um and so the the understanding from a really young age that i i have uh, i'm carrying this huge responsibility on my shoulders yeah and i i still feel it until today because i i I think there is nothing uh, very special about me or 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 unique about me i just happen to i i I just happen to have been brought up a little bit differently and so i have this um, uh, i have this ability just to you know to see the other side in a way that i feel i feel that i mean if you know, today we're seeing the consequences of how the hatred and the segregation and the lack of, of, of empathy and awareness really towards each other can result such horrific, you know, circumstances. And I you know, I just came back from a five hour interview to like a leftist Israeli newspaper. Oh my goodness. <laughs> because there aren't there aren't enough there aren't people here and artists and people that are speaking about ceasefire or just like saying very minimal basic things to, you know, to stop the, the, the war, to stop, to stop, to, you know, to, to bring back the hostages, to negotiate a deal, to stop killing and starving. and and it, people in Gaza, it's just, you know, and it is, and I feel, I feel, I feel very lonely. Yes. Yeah. Very, um, very sad for us, for the Palestinians, for everyone, really. And I just feel like all these things about how I grew up and all my efforts and my activism and my comedy and everything, I feel like people like me are being overlooked right now because the tensions are so high, the hatred is so high, the bloodshed is so extreme. And as soon as... This this is over and we will go into the restoring phase and the healing phase. And then suddenly my my, you know, my voice is needed again and people are like, you know, paying attention again. And I was like, I've been here. Hello. I've been saying these things for so long. And it's just so heartbreaking because everything and every drop of blood that is being wasted, it's for nothing. Nothing. It's for nothing. It's it's really for nothing. And it hurts my soul that so many people are following blindly the government that is you know, these I mean I I, I especially like grieve for, for for my people, for the people in Israel that are following you know, that are that are that have you, you know, that I mean we have a government that is so racist and so horrible and so fascist and fascism even makes me fear to speak in on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, I feel so heartbroken that the people who are not me, you know, who are not like peace activists and whatever, and don't have, and think that they don't have another choice, and they follow blindly, and they go to the military, and they s- salute the commander, and they go after the flow, the herd, and that they don't stop and say, No, there is another choice. And this government is just lazy, and they don't take responsibility for what happened because it was under their watch. Right. And then the people have to pay the price. Right. I want to scream and say there is another choice. The government will work harder if you don't go and fulfill their orders because of their fail- failure. Right. Yeah. I I'm with you. Like I I've wanted to
0: talk to you for a long time because I feel the exact same way, heartbroken and just sad because I feel like there's no the things that you're saying. So you. From seven years old, like, you learned both sides. But I feel like when you tell people the things, so so that sounds like it's a matter of education, but it's like when you tell people, they just don't listen or they say no, they have their own narrative and that's it. They're, I feel like they're so propagandized that there's no way to get through to them. Even now, like, we're seeing all these images of what's happening, not just in Gaza, but the West Bank. And still people like with these images are still saying, no, it's Hamas. It's just Hamas. It's just Hamas. Like, there's no I I get so sad. That's that's exactly the point I come to. So many Iranian Jews and other people write me and they say, oh, we just want the hostages back. This is all Hamas's fault. And it's just a back and forth, back and forth. OK, but I don't I will never advocate for violence. I will always advocate for peace like this is not the way to get it. And I try to see the good in them, but in the end, I do get so angry because I say your narrative is what is is cause is like allowing genocide. And so when you post, like you show these protests that you're going to, and there's like where are all the people? Like there's aren't they seeing these images? Like aren't they seeing what's happening now? Aren't isn't the veil lifted? I don't understand. I just do not get it.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a good question that I I. There's I think there are so many answers. I mean on one hand, no, we're not getting the images. There is ah. censorship one hundred there is censorship one hundred percent. The question okay. is the question is is it something convenient for me to believe that they're not seeing the images? Is it people's natural habitat to kind of like grieve for your own people and that's it? You know, so I I worry about the hostages and I worry about, you know, only the people from my side that are suffering and that's it, the rest I don't care about. The reason why we can't allow this is because we, we live on the, it's the same land. Like Gaza is not this like far away land, you know. When you see the extreme like Messianistic settlers saying that they would like, to resettle in Gaza and to build settlements. I mean, you've seen these videos circulating, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. My, point, it's like I want to ask. You know, are you planning to build those settlements on the on the mass graves that are that are that we can't even count the dead in Gaza, and the bodies are going, you know, into the ground and doing what? They're, I mean, what what kind of a of a of a vision full of death and, and horrific, you know, you know, vision. I I mean, what are you like, are you, you know, I don't know uh, people in Israel are in so much grief and pain for really the horrific October 7th, you know, massacres truly I've lost friends I've lost people that I know there's no justification it is horrible it is painful it's the it's really 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 like there are no words to describe and you know the the people that we lost are some of them are peace activists and people that have fought the occupation their whole lives and it just it proves my point you know it proves my point people on the right wing they tell me oh you see those people who fought the occupation and were on the Palestinian side got killed by Palestinians and I'm like yes because our leaders didn't work hard enough to change the circumstances and to provide solutions so that these people will not have to die that, that that way and i you know and and the people in and people in israel are in so much trauma and grief that you are unable to see beyond that and the government lacks real answers and you know a political plan, plan to tell the people okay this uh, disaster happened to us this is what we're going to do instead immediately without letting us grieve or anything they went it started the bombardment on Gaza the ground invasion this like and and and, and that's it and people uh, people are not even asking questions and people are not demanding from the, show me. Are there? What are the results of this? What is the? What is the victory? Is there a victory? What kind? What is? What does it mean to destroy Hamas? What is? What does it? What? Tell me in I don't know in military terms. Tell me in in political terms. Tell me what? When do you reach a point where you say if I reach X and Y, that that means Hamas is destroyed because. We're seeing numbers that are I, I mean, the human brain cannot cannot digest these numbers, the number of devastation of hunger, of, of, of hunger, of thirst, of displaced, of you know, refugees, of people in the cold, sick, under the rubble. what? And the government knows that the people in Israel right now are completely blinded by the trauma and are unable to. And, and 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 this chaos just continues, and you know, I mean, I'm not. I think that even for people, even for Israelis who are seeing the horrors in Gaza, I've heard a lot of people say, "I, I I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't have the space, and like, I, I, what am I?" So you you know people are expecting just to sit in the dark and to let this pass as if some kind of miracle will will undo this or will stop this like we have to stop this so when i go to the street and i protest now and i see so few people i i go crazy i go hopeless i don't know what else we can do i don't know yeah people are somewhere else mentally I mean, even the demand to release the hostages, it's like this generic, okay, release the hostages, how? You need to find a deal, negotiate a deal, pay the prices, you know, and artists and people who are very political and very liberal, it's hard for them to even say this. Wow. That's interesting. So your
0: friends even, like, do you have friends that don't, or what's your community like?
1: My friends and my circles, they are, you know, they were able to, you know, shake themselves off and like get up and, you know, tune back into reality and step out of the victimized uh, corner to, you know, to, to, to say these things. But in the bigger circles, there are a lot of people who are saying we don't have hope anymore. There's nobody to talk to. There's no justification for a ceasefire, blah, 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 blah. And that's very, very, very sad. People that you know, that that you know oppose this government and you're like, you think the same government responsible for this disaster that were in charge of us during this disaster will have an answer for you or is doing the right thing. Right. And, you know, and honestly to see... Yeah, to see. I mean, the fact that I mean, you know, people ask me how come people are not protesting in masses for a ceasefire for the hostages and and for the people in Gaza. Right. And so, if there are no big, huge protests that demand, you know, release of hostages right now, I mean, you. Right. I mean that that even is not happening. Wow, that's so, true. Yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's very uh it's it's very hard well, one thing is I
0: think that I mean there's an international community of people that are trying to protest and are, and like you said, you found some solidarity with like Iranian activists and everything, and I think that I think it's very helpful to have people like you who are inside of Israel. Because that's that's one thing. We're all on the outside and we're looking in. It's very helpful to have people like you who speak out and then we can say, you know, that's a voice from the inside who has, like, seen it. It's not just us having theories from the outside, right? So then everything that you say is really very helpful. And I really appreciate that you... I know it's, like, completely thankless and it's very hard and...
1: No I've been I've been very overwhelmed with the way my vo- my voice has been echoed in the past because I feel like a failure to be honest. I've lost friends on both sides. I feel completely useless and hopeless. But then when I write things and when I post things I see that it is being echoed in big numbers and I'm like, "Oh, okay, so maybe I should find a way to somehow continue because someone is listening."
0: Yeah. Is because there any other resources that you recommend that we we look at
1: are voices inside Israel or or outside. Yeah, I think you should follow, You should you should look at Israeli human rights organizations. The, you know, like B'Tselem, breaking the silence. There are a lot of you know activists from within who are reporting, and also I think you know the, uh, there is nine seven two, which. It's hard to get kind of media outlets that show you kind of you know the 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 more like the not uh, propaganda kind of media outlet style. So nine seven two, they are very very good, and also you know to follow Palestinian voices, you know especially from within Gaza who are kind of. I mean I don't know how they do it. I don't know. Um, I follow Motaz, of course. Um, yeah and yeah so so nine seven two also, and I mean, there's so many, maybe yeah I,
0: could, I'll send me a link of all those, and I'll put those all under the show notes, yeah. but is there anything else that you think like Iranians specifically should know or should should be doing right now
1: i think for you know i mean it it, it is obviously i think very kind of a complex. Positioning, I think, to be to be on the outside and look, you know, inside inside on 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 what's happening. The thing is that I I don't I think people shouldn't be afraid of being critical of Israel. And I think that if you you know let's say this in very like simplistic terms, right? If you're a victim and you fled. From the Islamic, you know, regime in Iran. So you're yeah, expected to be on Israel's side, right? Because this is the kind of like dichotomy that we're expected. But there is a place for us, you know, for people who can be critical of Israel, can understand the power structure, you know, and understand that the well-being of Israelis is the well-being of Palestinians, the well-being of Palestinians is the well-being of Israelis. It's like you can try to separate the two very very harshly but you cannot at, at the end of the day you know we, you know i wish to the palestinians all the rights and privileges and the access to resources the land everything the same like a jewish person that is living on this land there is there is no shortcut to what i just said only equality and only, you know, not living superior to anyone, that is the only way to reach a life that is full of life on this land. Otherwise, we will soak in, we will be soaked in blood. And so the feeling, the pressure to choose, you know, whether you, you know, you stand with, you you know, you stand with Israel so you cannot listen to the Palestinian cause or the Palestinian quest or the Palestinian history struggle, you know, don't go don't go to that place. Don't, you know, give in to that pressure. If you are, don't let anyone tell you that you are anti-Semitic because you're listening to Palestinians and you wish for the Palestinians the same equality and the same justice that Israelis and Jews get, have. So this is really my message. It's so
0: simple, but it's so... <laughs> Seems like it's, yeah, I feel like it needs to be said over and over again. Yeah. And I really appreciate you saying it that simply and beautifully. I, I was on a call with, is it Rula from yeah. Standing Together? Yeah, yeah. And she was saying how in the beginning she would just say peace. And that was just radical. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, peace. Yeah. No, and peace with who? <laughs> peace with who?
0: <laughs> and then from the beginning it was, I mean, it's just peace is a radical concept. But, oh, another thing I want to tell you is I, before this all started, I was reading the the biography of Einstein and it was just such perfect timing because it was the exact same thing. I don't, have you read extensively about him? I'm sure. Oh, geez. Okay. Einstein, from the very beginning, you know, they asked him to be the president of Israel, right? Oh,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. I knew that actually. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So from the very beginning, I mean, it is, Ama- the things that he says echoes what you say exactly. From the beginning, he said, I'm fine with this. Like, let's do this. It's a great idea. But we must do it with peace with the Arabs. We cannot dismiss the peace of the Arabs. And if we do, we will be faced with decades of bloodshed and violence. If we ignore the plight of the palace. I'll-, I'll send you the quotes from yeah. from what he said. And even right before he died, he'd written a speech that he was going to give in Israel for the 10 year anniversary, I think, of Israel. And he never was able to say it. But that was his warning in there was like, do not. And and in the end, he didn't agree with the whole thing because he was like, oh, my my warnings are being ignored. And from the very beginning, he was saying, you know, peace. And uh, he's he was a pacifist. And everyone would just say, you're just naive. You're naive. Then they would ignore him. So all these things that you say, all these things that all these peace a- activists are saying, peace has always been a radical concept. It's yeah. always been looked down on. It's always been dismissed. So that's that's what you're facing right now. And it's just such a shame that, you know, decades later, there aren't hundreds, thousands, millions of people in the street with you saying the same thing.
1: Yeah. You know that in in nineteen eighty some uh, I forgot the year, but when uh, Sharon, who was the the minister of defense, when the massacre of Sabra and Shatila in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon was happening, there were four hundred thousand Israelis protesting against the massacre, being that Palestinian, you know, and and so i I'm thinking to myself. To myself like and this was during war, it was during the Lebanon war. People were, people were protesting. You know, not to say that everything was amazing and perfect back then, but to see the difference between, you know, how how thing how it, it has become so almost impossible to speak against the war during the war. Like right. I'm expected to speak against the war after the war has ended, that's a little bit too late. So right. now is before it's too late. Right, I mean, this is decades of messaging
0: that's worked, you know, yeah, it's yeah. decades of just yeah. anyway, well, Noam Jun, is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't
1: covered yet, or just that I hope that one day we'll we'll record a podcast in Iran together.
0: <laughs> oh, I would love that, and are you are you back in doing comedy or? <laughs> Not really comedy not. in times of war. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. not
1: really. The, it it will have to wait. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope to see your comedy again soon in good circumstances and like you uh-huh. said in Iran. Thank yeah. you so much for talking Thank with you. me today. I really appreciate it. And I
1: hope that we can do more. Yeah. To help. Hope this will end soon and we can yeah. And end this fast.
0: And that is the end of the interview. Thank you so much for listening. The full list of resources Noam recommends are in the show notes for this episode. I wish and hope and pray for peace. And with that, I sign off. This is Leila Shams from Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation.